He didn't just win the Super Bowl. Travis Kelsey will be hosting Saturday Night Live next month. It just came out. Cleveland Heights in the spotlight yet again. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. We're happy it's a Friday because it's been a long week. Let's get to some of the news. The race is on. Why Ohio Republican lawmakers work to make it harder for voters to change the state constitution. What happened Thursday that makes it more likely that people seeking to legalize abortion in the constitution will beat those lawmakers to the punch? Layla, we were expecting this development. It kind of is amazing how long it took to happen. That's true. Yeah. Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom and Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights have announced that they're teaming up to get an abortions rights measure on the ballot in November. These two groups were previously at odds with each other on how to go about getting this issue before voters. They were competing for donors and competing for political talent. And that kind of factious relationship really hindered their progress because donors and supporters weren't sure who to back. The Reproductive Freedom Group wanted to aim for November 2024 to take advantage of the higher turnout of voters during a presidential election year and because Senator Sherrod Brown would be up for re-election. And the Physicians Group wanted to aim for November 2023 to seize the moment and, and beat Republicans to the punch before they succeed in making it more difficult to get constitutional amendments passed in Ohio. So Republicans are, are really working on getting that issue on the November ballot as well. But now that these two groups are joining forces, they plan to submit initial ballot summary language is to Attorney General Dave Yost for approval as soon as next week. That's the first step in a pretty complicated process of qualifying statewide issue for the ballot. They describe the ballot issue as being similar to the one that voters approved in Michigan last November. Uh, but then they have to go on to collect hundreds of thousands of valid voter signatures, and that's going to cost them millions to hire people to circulate those peti- petitions. I, I, I mean, the Republican plan could backfire. There are a lot of groups that don't want to devalue their vote. It's a very cynical move by the Republicans to try and grow their power as they have these super majorities. But I never understood why the abortion folks were thinking they had time to do it next year. Time is of the essence, and they've, their lackadaisical attitude astounded me. Plus, as we've often talked, having two groups doing two separate things was just lunacy. So it's about time they got it together and focused on November. Yes. And and it's interesting that, that, that this could appear on the ballot alongside this measure to, you know, to stifle voters' uh, voice when it comes to how easy it is to get a constitutional amendment passed. Because no one who votes for the abortion rights proposal is going to vote for this constitutional amendment proposal. It's uh, it, it, I, I'm so interested to see how this shakes out. Well, don't you think it'll really drive turnout? I mean, that was one reason they wanted to keep marijuana off the ballot, right? They would, didn't want all the Democrats to come out. Right. It would drive turnout on both both sides. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think both of these could drive Democratic turnout. I think there's going to be so many voices in opposition to reducing the value of the vote. It is as anti-Democratic as you can get. And their only spiel is going to be, we want to protect the Constitution. People are going to be able to tear that argument to pieces. Uh, and so I, it's overwhelming. And the Republicans, I thought the Republicans, the wise Republicans, realized 
that that move was dumb, that that was likely to get a huge backlash. We were seeing it already, but Jason Stevens caved to the pressure and now they're they're marching with it. I think they're going to be surprised by what they see. This isn't Republican Democrat anymore. You're going to see people on both sides say, "What are you doing? We're not going to reduce our vote." The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan group. They're going to be very vocal, saying that this is a terrible, terrible idea. And yeah, the, go ahead. The, I was just going to say the argument that that they're trying to protect the Constitution is just absurd from who protected from the voters right <laughs> what, what are you trying to well they're going to try and say it's outside interests with with money but that's actually what's driving this and, and yeah let's look at the larry householder trial right. I mean, and then meanwhile you know m- most ohioans want the abortion amendment uh, the majority and so if that's on the ballot i think you'll see a larger turnout than you get in what is traditionally an off-year election this isn't a presidential election. It's not a statewide office election. It's a bunch of a bunch of local judges and city councils. And what they're doing is likely to bring a groundswell out. So very interesting tactics. We'll be following it all year long. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Some big news for the future of motoring. What company formerly headquartered in Northeast Ohio is buying another company currently headquartered in Northeast Ohio for $1.3 billion? And Laura, what is it going to mean for the driving public? This is the continuation of a conversation we keep having about electric vehicles. Absolutely. So BP is buying Travel Centers of America for that $1.3 billion. And Travel Centers of America, which is itself a conglomerate of previous companies, is headquartered in Westlake, has a network of about 280 truck stops across 44 states, employs 18,000 people, and it's going to become all of the part of BP. $86 a share, that's about 84% over market value. That's interesting. And the sale will close sometime in the middle of 2023. Shareholders still have to approve it. But the idea is, you know, there will be giving the company 280 locations with direct highway access, and it'll help expand this electric vehicle charging options and other fueling options, which I didn't even know about, like hydrogen. News to me. Yeah. the, the What we've talked about is, is if you have to charge your car, it's not immediate like a, a gas fill up so that the places that are doing it, if they have entertainment and dining options, that'll be lucrative. And these truck stops are huge facilities. They're kind of made for it. They're all at the the key locations. So BP recognizing that gasoline sales are going to go down is smartly buying into places where it can continue to be serving the motoring public. Right. Like we've talked about, you're going to have to want to do something. And and a travel center has a lot more stuff than just a gas station. Where will all the truckers go if all the electric cars kind of push them out of the way for all these families? These are all still, like, every time you go to one, they're massive, right? Like, the parking lot is huge. There's trucks one way. There's cars one way. There's usually, like, a McDonald's or a Burger King or whatever and and giant restrooms and showers. And are these going to get bigger? (laughs) <laughs> are, we gonna, are they going to be expanding? Yeah, the culture of the of the highway life is going to change. Put playgrounds in, dog parks. A lot of money being spent. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, we've been talking a lot about the householder trial and how the victims of this thing were the residents of Ohio, that Larry Householder scammed us all to enrich himself and take care of his first energy bribers. But 
there were other victims that haven't gotten as much attention, and one of them took the stand this week, gave you a different perspective on the the bullying that Householder used in this case. Her name is Beth Ellis, and she was a Republican candidate for uh, Ohio House Representative in 2018 for Pike, Clinton, and Highland Counties. She calls herself a farmer's wife. Um, she lost to Shane Wilkin, who was a householder-backed candidate who later spon- went on to sponsor House Bill 6. Um, and mailers, there were some negative mailers sent against Ms. Ellis, and they came from the Growth and Opportunity Pack. These ads painted her as a puppet. She was handpicked by p- political insiders and preferred by the Columbus establishment, but she didn't respond in kind. She was a little bit shaken by it all, so she just kept on campaigning. And earlier testimony by FBI agent Blaine Wetzel showed that these mailers were funded by money that flowed from First Energy through Generation Now, the dark money pack that's at the center of all of this, and flowed to the Growth and Opportunity Pack, which paid for these ads. And so on the cross-examination by... uh, uh, defendant attorney Mark Marin, he says, well, you know nothing about House Bill 6 or its events. You're just saying you just lost to a more experienced candidate who ran negative ads against you. Yeah, but it, it, it's so much more sinister than that. It, it, Larry Householder hatched this scheme, which we've described, with First Energy to become House Speaker and take care of First Energy. But to do that, he needed votes. So he used this bribery money to support candidates who he knew would vote for him. So this person that that is running for office gets blasted by the full firehose force of this corrupt money when all she was doing was running for office. I mean, she is an unsuspecting victim of a huge machinery of corruption. The defense attorneys really don't have a leg to stand on here. And and she said she felt really bad about the ads. And like I said, she didn't respond in kind. So she just kept on going, not knowing what, you know, machinations were going on under under the surface. Well, you know, we talked about it earlier in the podcast, the Republicans in the state house are trying to exert more control by changing the way we, we deal with the Constitution. This is all part of the same thing. It's all part of this this incredible greed for power at the expense of regular people, like people who might want to run for the legislature or voters. And it continues. We've, we seem to have learned nothing. They continue to try and glom on to more and more power. Frank LaRose is the guy that, that proposed it. He's Northeast Ohio's own. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is this a surprise? What happened to Cleveland home prices in January for the first time in a long time, Layla? Home prices fell for the first time in several years in both Cleveland and suburban Cuyahoga County over over last January's numbers. Reporter Megan Sims looked at single-family home sales while excluding sheriff sales and deals involving multiple parcels. And she found that in the city of Cleveland, the January median was $65,000, down from $73,500 a year ago. And in the suburbs, it's a little less dramatic. The, the median was 170000 down from 171390 in January 2021. So just a smidge. But, you know, home prices are still way higher than they were before the pandemic. And in January of 2019, the median in Cleveland was 40000 and the suburban median was 117250 But, the you know, it's a modest downward trend. It's notable. 
Well, you and Laura just all but sold your children to pay for big <laughs> expansions of your houses. Does this make you a little bit nervous? No. <laughs> no, because I have children, so I needed another bathroom. <laughs> but no, I mean, my house, I plan to live in it forever until I cannot climb the stairs anymore. So I'm not worried about year-to-year fluctuations. And and I bought my house at the absolute best time to buy a, a first uh, you know, first home, which was in 2012, the oh, the market was just perfect for for buyers, and so the 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 equity that I'm getting back from improving the house is, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm all in. Yeah. I'm- Plus, if we waited longer, like who knows what inflation would cost, right? Yeah, I'm glad right. we locked it in when we could. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This is a tiny fluctuation. The house prices have risen quite a bit. And unlike in 2008, it's not some phony bubble built by corrupt investors. It's a, it's actual equity. And you're going to see fluctuations like this when interest rates go up as they have. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is a Republican in the Ohio House in some hot water over a billboard in western Pennsylvania? Laura reporter Laura Hancock found this one. It's another interesting story about the state House Republicans. Yes, this is Representative Jenna Powell. She is a champion of First Amendment rights, and she shares those views online. She's also the vice president of Huntington Billboards. Her brother is the CEO. And that company removed a Democratic-sponsored billboard in western Pennsylvania in a conservative area outside Pittsburgh because, well, we're not exactly sure why, (laughs) but the Armstrong County Democratic Committee paid $1,100 for a month for the sign. And it said, no matter what you look like, who you love, what your religion, where you're from, you've got a friend in Armstrong County. I mean, it really sounds kind of Mr. Rogers-esque, but it came down. And uh, she, there, the, all we know is that there's criticism of this. The founder of the left-leaning state action initiative said the removal is odd and it's a strange move for someone who complains about censorship and cancel culture. Yeah, it's a strange move for somebody that's involved in a billboard company because if you're involved in a billboard company, you generally protect free speech and the First Amendment. This seems like an incredible trampling of it. We don't like it because of the implied or subtle message, so we're taking it down. The subtle message that we like. People. Yeah, it's just it's one of those that if you do nothing, you know, it's a billboard. People drive by it. It doesn't do anything. By taking it down, you bring the big spotlight to yourself as some kind of authoritarian that's trying to control what people think. Especially when you've been all very active saying that against the cancel culture, saying that we are, we're allowed to say whatever we want. <laughs> She's saying that social, you know, companies shouldn't censor conservative voices you could say whatever you want as long as it agrees with what i say that's basically what i do feel a lot of people feel that yeah. way but they don't own billboard company yeah but if you own a billboard company you're kind of in the free speech fight very interesting story you're listening to today in ohio lisa u.s senator sherrod brown thinks the site of the eastern ohio train derailment should be a disaster area mike dewine says it isn't why well, it's an interesting, you know, reasoning. Um, DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney says they did contact the Federal Emergency Management Agency about a disaster declaration, but they were told that the derailment and uh, subsequent chemical 
bill does not qualify because there is no unreimbursed property damage like you would have in a tornado or a flood or a hurricane. Norfolk Southern is paying for food, water, and hotels for evacuees. They're also uh, footing the bill for air and water quality tests for anyone who requests them in the area. And he said that FEMA assistance kicks in when issues are not covered by third parties, which is happening here. But Governor Wine DeWine did seek assistance from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services emergency response team that will bring doctors, nurses, and supplies to the area, and also the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I've been reading some stories the past 24 hours that are looking at the media frenzy, the irresponsible media frenzy involving this uh, rail crash. New York Times has a story today about fringe media describing it as Chernobyl 2 and and reporters wildly speculating about how dangerous it is. Wired Magazine has a piece that said a whole lot of people got their news on this from TikTok. And again, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of the speculative stuff, the the tie to the movie that was filmed here that, that had many of the same themes. And it does feel like there's a big gulf between truth and what is being talked about out there, largely fed by some irresponsible media. I mean, Mike DeWine's right. This does not qualify as a disaster area. You don't have massive amounts of damage, and they're trying to take a, a measured approach. Let's test, let's monitor, let's make sure everything is safe. But but call, calling it calling for it to be a disaster area is kind of the hysteria. It's part of buying into that frenzy. Well, and the further away people get from East Palestine, Ohio, I think the more sensationalist the headlines have become. I mean, CNN has three big headlines. Animals are dying and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think they're just, and, and, you know, castigating the government for for not calling in, you know, FEMA. Yeah. It, It is interesting that FEMA is only for acts of God, not for acts of corporations, which I did not know. Look, there, there's no denying that we don't regulate the railroads. There's no denying that Norfolk Southern is hugely irresponsible. There are safety efforts they could use. There's braking systems that are modern that would greatly help here. There's lots of evidence that the railroads are reckless and that should be addressed that, so that we don't have this. But there's a thousand derailments a year. There was another one in Michigan outside Detroit yesterday mm-hmm. carrying toxic materials. Apparently there's not a spill. This one, for some reason, has just galvanized the tension like many others do not and led to ridiculous reports. And and it makes it hard for people to, to understand what the truth is. And I feel bad for DeWine because he seems like he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to keep a measured approach, make sure people are safe. But he's dealing with with just ridiculous over the top Chernobyl too. Come on. Think about mm-hmm. that. Anyway. And I, and, and honestly, you know, people have been castigating Nor- Nor- Norfolk Southern for not showing up to that public meeting because they've been threatened. Well, they've been threatened. I mean, some, Oh, they, they just don't want to face the people. Well, if they've been threatened, why would they want to go to a hostile audience? Yeah, I, I, I agree. If I were running Norfolk Southern, I probably wouldn't have shown up there because it did seem like things were getting out of hand. On the other hand, they should be so much more proactive about what's going on. The New York Times had a wonderful graphic today of the train cars that derailed, and it, and it showed each car 
what it was carrying, whether it spilled, whether it burned, one by one by one by one. But it also pointed out the cars ahead of those that derailed and the 75 cars behind those that derailed. We still don't know what was in them. So you don't know if this was a bigger threat than we even knew because they won't say that is just not acceptable. And, and I, you know, instead of Sherrod Brown calling for it to be labeled a disaster area, he ought to be using his clout in Congress, pass some laws that fully regulate the railroad industry and make them be transparent. Stop grandstanding, do your work. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ernst & Young made a splash when it moved into a flats office tower built by the Wolstein family more than a decade ago, putting its name in a very prominent spot on the first tall building to go up in the city in nearly 20 years. Layla, why is it already moving out? Yeah, they've, they've been at that 18-floor high-rise in the flats since 2013, but reporter Megan Sims tells us that when their lease is up in November, Ernst & Young will move from the flats to the North Point Tower office complex at the corner of East 9th Street and Lakeside. That's right across the street from City Hall. The new office space is home to law firm Jones Day. It's really centrally located. It's close to the shoreway at 990. It has a great view of the lake and First Energy Stadium. This was the spot that was the site of the former Cleveland Press, which went out of business in 1982, just as a little side note of trivia. But why are they moving? It sounds like their new space will be more conducive to the kind of workspace they want to offer their employees. They say it will offer a variety of workspaces and collaborative technology. They'll also get you know, an on-site auditorium and a free fitness center in this new location. But it definitely sounds like this is this is part of the trend of employers trying to create better workspaces to meet that post-pandemic era in which people know they can they know they can effectively work from home. So you better make it worth my while to come to the office instead. Yeah, I got to tell you, I've been in that building, right? The the one they're moving to, and it's very sterile. The views really? are mediocre. Okay. And in the Ernst & Young building, where they are now, you're, you're in a tower overlooking a lake. I, and, uh, you know, the, the, the workout room, that, that's, that seems funny to me. I wonder if there are problems with the building they're in that we just aren't hearing about. I mean, think about it. Where would you rather be? In one of those uh, yeah. towers overlooking the majesty of Lake Erie or in a, in a squat building overlooking the muni parking lot? <laughs> Right. I just wonder if it they wanted to be closer to everything downtown. Because if you're in that building, I mean, you, you could walk along the river and there's a bunch of restaurants there. But like if employees were like, look, I really need to run errands at lunch and I need to be able to go to CVS. It, it's a longer walk. That's the only thing. The central location, I wonder. But I think anything. I'd rather have like the sweet brand new building. A 10 year old building is is a new building. It should, right. and, and I would assume it should already be a pretty modern space. I don't understand why it couldn't be easily retrofitted for any amenities or technology they wanted to add to it. Right. If you went to the landlord and said, we're thinking of moving because we don't think you have a good enough workout room, my bet yeah. is the landlord would have fixed up the workout room. Uh, I, yeah. I, it just, it's not ringing true. And again, it's a very sterile building and it's not. At the, and parking is a little bit problematic. And really, that intersection is awful for traffic. So when you're trying to get in and out, it's not great. You're right off the interstate, but it's uh, a logjam. And Laura, I don't know. You're, you're just down the hill from West 6th Street. And so I, it's not really a terrible location 
This was the jewel. When it opened, it was considered the jewel building. And 10 years later, the the sheen is off. I'm, I'm, I'm having. A... And I wonder if that's going to affect the Aloft Hotel that's basically attached to it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just look, you, we've all been in the in the county courthouse, or I think we've all been. Maybe you haven't been, Lisa. But when you're up high looking out over the city and the lake, it takes your breath away. <laughs> I, if it were me, there's no way I would want to trade one for the other. I'm just surprised. Maybe the rent is way cheaper at this new facility. Maybe. You know? Maybe, Maybe they're getting a big deal, but they're trying to pass it off to their employees as this is for your own good. You're going to have a sweet auditorium and fit fitness center. Yeah. <laughs> Collaborative I, workspace, I, you know, I, the buzzwords. I've been in that auditorium. It's it's okay. I, I'm just not seeing it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The owner of Cedar Point seems to be doing just fine, according to its 2022 earnings call. Lisa, what are the numbers? Uh, the Cedar Fair Amusement Parks, of which there are 15, their 2022 earnings were $1.82 billion. That's up 36% over the previous year. And that's despite attendance not reaching pre-pandemic levels. So attendance for last year was almost 27 million guests. That's up 38% from 2021 and their second highest attendance in history. But it's still down 4% from the pre-pandemic 2019. Um, they've also also found that per capita park spending or what guests spend while they're there is about $61.65. That's down 1%. They're spending more on food and beverage, but they're spending less on pricey items like fast lane passes that allow you to go to the front of the line. And Cedar Fair CEO Richard Zimmerman says that decreased attendance is probably due to group travel that's coming back slowly after the pandemic, but he expects group travel to rebound significantly this year. He says corporate bookings are already robust and they will be uh, hoping for a boost in attendance by new attractions at their biggest parks. Yeah, I it almost felt like that inflation made up for the loss in attendance because everything just costs more. So they got more money. Yeah, I just want to say they're, they're doing just fine because if you want to eat a meal at Cedar Point, you better take out a second mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> it is so expensive. And their expenses were up 25% last year. So that is, huh. that is inflation is rearing its head there. Well, for people that love Cedar Point, I'm sure they're, they're glad to hear that it's healthy, the parent company. But it all, like Layla said, you go broke going there. It's very <laughs> expensive. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, you're the, the winner lover. How do you turn a professional football field into a hockey arena? And why would you even want to do that? Because it's cool. But I'm, uh, uh, uh. Uh, I'm going to this game tomorrow, the Ohio State versus Michigan game, the frozen face-off, as they call it. When I found out in the fall, um, my son's hockey team was super excited and got tickets. So they're talking about tens of thousands of fans. I'm not really sure they're going to get up to that because uh, they're practically giving these seats away. But it's going to be 45 and sunny, which is not bad for, for viewers, but is a little tough on the ice because you need cold air to make ice. The, the NHL has been doing this for years for the winter classic on new year's day. They've played in Notre Dame. They played at Fenway and Brad Moore, the first energy direction director of stadium operations got this idea that he wanted to do it in Cleveland. So they decided in July, he made inroads with the NHL found out who did this in Fenway 
and basically started work on it. So they required a thousand cubic yards of sand laid as a base and laser leveled because it has to be completely flat. They laid down a mat, which is a barrier between the refrigeration tubes and sand. We're talking about 26 miles of linear tubes and pipes that carry refrigerant. And then dasher boards all around the edge were consecutive were constructed. A chiller plant arrived. It's, it's like a building on the field that cycles through 3,200 gallons of refrigerant every seven minutes. And it goes in around 13 degrees, makes the ice 17 to 19 degrees. So it's a lot of work to do this. They're going to have it up through the beginning of March and have a bunch of games. The monsters are going to play on it. There's going to be high school games. John Carroll's playing tonight. So uh, some public open skates. They're not saying this is going to be an annual deal, but they're hoping it's a success. An ice rink is much smaller than a football field. So if you're sitting in the seats, are you pretty far away? I'm thinking yes. Every time I've seen the Winter Classic on TV, you're like, that's not a great view of a hockey game. But I think it's just the experience of being there and being outside. When I was at the Monsters game on Saturday, they they had big you know, promos for it about being a winter game and Cleveland is the home of winter. And it was like, yeah, it's like 50 degrees outside right now, but um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun idea. We'll see how it works. They're a little worried about sunshine and rain. If it's raining, they won't be able to play. They're going to keep this thing covered just like a tarp on a baseball field. Um, So yeah, the, the warm weather obviously was not expected and that's going to be a bit of a challenge over the next couple of weeks. Are you going to bring binoculars? Maybe I'll pack my binoculars. (laughs) And for anyone worried about the turf in Brown Stadium getting wrecked, don't worry. They replace the turf every year. And this is super cool. The ice paint, uh, which, by the way, heats up faster than the white ice, which makes sense, is made up of ground-up seashells, so it's not toxic. Okay. Well, I hope you have a good time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for a week of news. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. We'll be back Monday, even though for some it's a holiday, talking about what we're reporting this weekend.